that was perhaps the best performance under Ten Hag so far. Definitely the best performance under Ten Hag and one of the best in the post-Fergie wilderness years, TM, yeah. I would say. There I think that's probably ones, fair. A couple of good ones under Van Gaal. Maybe three really good ones under Ole. Like the two City wins and yeah. Paris. Yeah, that was that was very fucking pleasing. It really was. I mean, total, total domination against the... I think, I think we knew how Conte's team would play. I mean, they do tend to sit back and, and try and break. But even with a man nominally, a man extra in midfield, United dominated in there. And it was just really... It, not only great performances from a whole most of the most of the players, but also Ten Hag came up with a brand new midfield system in order to dominate this game, which was really interesting. I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that as you said, the matchup is good for us. I actually saw a message I sent to a mate on Wednesday morning that said they're crap. The matchup is good for us <laughs> because. I thought if they play, if you play three four three and United play in midfield, I thought it would be Casemiro, Bruno, and Fred. Plus mm-hmm. the way the fullbacks are, you're going to struggle to get the ball. And it does feel like they're just hoping that Kane or Son do something. And I thought was, I didn't wa- I didn't want Conte as United manager because I didn't want to have to watch Conte football. But also there was yeah. a feeling that he was yes one of yesterday's men. That might the, be true. The Chelsea yeah. team with which he won the league. But that was an amazing performance from him. I think they lost to Arsenal badly. And then he, there was maybe an international break and he thought about it and was like, right. And he decided he was going to play three at the back, box midfield. Yep. And, yep. and then they went on that ludicrous winning run. I mean, that is that was an amazing achievement. But that team with Victor Moses at Rigenpack would not win this league. And it didn't feel like from the players right. he signed in the summer, he spent 100 million quid turning them from a team that, can contest the top four into a team that can contest the top yeah, four. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned Ten Hag, and if you look at the difference in players, right, he's buying slightly older players because he's a, obviously he's a guy for now and presumably wants to fuck off back to Italy as soon yeah. as he'd get a job that he'd take. Whereas Ten Hag has bought younger players who he thinks are going to go and be Mostly. something a bit more. Yeah. So I, I, Richarlison is someone I think, for example, has some attributes. Quite, who always, when he was at Everton, I thought that his top level could make him play somewhere better but you know, at 24 he's unlikely to develop into something that you want to spend 60 million quid on whereas yeah. enough sport players would be younger and he can't get in the side either so and yeah I mean him getting injured you talked about Spurs' system I thought was quite good for them because it meant they could get that extra man into midfield yeah. and they didn't do them any good like Basuma is another one who might be a top four player but he's not going to elevate a top four team into title challenges. Whereas the players Ten Hag has bought, Anthony Martinez, are players he thinks could go on to be among the best in the world. And yeah, it was, it was really very, I mean, with Basuma, Bentecourt and Hoiberg in there in, in Spurs' midfield, it, that, that's a really prosaic midfield, isn't it? They weren't going to do anything with the ball. They're not and there he was going to have play football. Them. He wanted to just have two of them. I mean, how are you going to get anything? I mean, I think Hoiberg is someone I just think is crap. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah. like, crap in it. Like, Aggressively better. average. Yeah, sure, he's better than you or me just, in there. But Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's so, so, he's just so slow and should not be playing in a team that is trying to be in the top four. And I mean, Tottenham, they got ravaged by Arsenal. They got ravaged by Chelsea as well and got away with it at the end. So, but what you said about Ten Hag and the midfield formation is, it is getting... 
I'm not just think I'm not just basing this on one game. I said it. I thought it when we signed Ericsson that I still wasn't certain I could see a way for the midfield not to be Bruno, whoever we signed turned out to be Casemiro and Fred or McTominay. And you could well, you, you could play we'll see. Ericsson. It might it might still be horses for courses. I mean, Fred played this really kind of weird position in that he was it was almost like a double eight with Bruno or it, did Bruno play deeper or did Fred play further forward I think both normal, both of those of things both. Yeah. both of those things because like and I think the thing with Fred is he is he is United's best player at winning the ball high up the pitch but sure you could talk you could definitely say well against the team that are going to sit just packed with defense then you might want Ericsson's guard and you might but Part of me also thinks that in order to play at that tempo that we played at last night against anyone, Fred is probably more suitable than Ericsson. But obviously, you, you want options. Not every player is going to play well in every game. So I'm not saying that it should just be that yeah. team that plays every game. But I think in the big games, you would almost definitely want a midfield that midfield. But even in some of the other games, because it means that you're winning the ball higher up the pitch and it doesn't matter who it's against that you're then able more easily yeah. to build and sustain attacks. Whereas, because if you think we've got Bruno and then we've got Anthony and we've got Sancho, who are yeah. both of those guys are sort of playmaking wingers. Yeah. Then you've got the fullbacks getting forward and you've got a centre-back that can properly play. That ability of Fred or of Fred in particular, but McTominay could probably do it as well to win the ball, win the ball in the final third might be more useful than Ericsson's beautiful passing. I don't know. It's something maybe, I thought yeah. when we signed Ericsson, yeah. and it's something I'm still thinking now. I mean, I think it's, it's horses for courses. It's control of the ball when you want control of the ball. It's hard to do that sometimes with Fred. Now, if you've got enough players in there that can play the ball, that are alternatives that use that get into the half spaces, that use the ball in smart areas, and you're using Fred as a modern-day Jisung Park in some fashion, that's not... I'm not not playing either of those down to say that to win the ball high up the field because if you win the ball high up the field your smart players can then use so it park to, i would say yeah. park did kind of piss me off in that it felt like a team of that quality should not have been playing a winger who you kind of hoped it, the ball went the other way like he took someone away that like great movement great running yeah, yeah. i i did i i found i found park frustrating and it's not well, well he was I thought he added to the team or any of that it's just I felt like a team of that quality didn't need necessarily to have a player like Park. But I tell you what reminded me of a little bit is that if you look at Liverpool now, mm-hmm. to me, like the, 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 the decline is partly an age thing, but it's also the, the big change was when, was when Wijnaldum left and they signed Thiago, who was obviously a better footballer than Wijnaldum, but the way that whole team worked was three starkers as yeah. run, running you off the pitch in midfield. Yeah. That then meant you couldn't get down the other end but also yeah. it meant that the fullbacks could then basically be playmakers because no, they had to get change their the system. You're right. And yeah. then the wide attackers could go for goal. And then as soon as they just change like one little piece of that, then factor in the, the idea that like Henderson just can't set that kind of tempo anymore because he's 32. And, but it was that change of Wijnaldum for Thiago. I think that even though Thiago scored that one goal that probably someone wrote a thesis about in the athletic and, <laughs> has played some nice passes here and there, which some people seem to seem to think is him dominating the Premier League. That team is not the same and he is the main reason for that. And I guess I sort of wonder if that's the case because 
because United are trying to looking to try and dominate games and to make games fast and hard, there is that kind of hybrid of City style and Liverpool style. I do wonder if they need someone a bit more physical in midfield, but I don't know. That's that, that's that's what I reminded me of anyway. Yeah, no, I, look, I think this it's all fair analysis in, in a different kind of game where you have a a team that will sit deeper. Oh, not that Spurs really try to express themselves so much of this game, but that will sit even deeper. I think Ericsson's ball ability on the ball is is even more important. He keeps United moving. I just thought it was interesting the 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 solution Ten Hag came up with it shows he's he's both a a manager that has a system he wants to play. It is fairly high tempo, but it is about dominating the ball. Right? It's not it's not gegen pressing. It's not tiki taka. There's some kind of hybrid there. It's his own thing. But he's also a really pragmatic coach that will come up with solutions for particular games. And look, he said like the, the, the other thing he did, of course, was bring in Rashford for Ronaldo. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get onto a bit of this. But he basically said it post-match after the weekend's game. He brought Rashford on to create space because Rashford's pace creates that space. Now, Rashford missed a bunch of chances last night. Could have made it even an even bigger score perhaps an even more justified score based on the the pattern of the game. But it certainly meant that Spurs had to think about what was going behind them. You know, and it, it gave United much more of the ball in front of Spurs. That's the thing, because I think you, you, there was this people saying, well, Ronaldo would have buried those two chances at the end of the He wouldn't have been game. in a position. But he would just, you wouldn't have had those chances. Like you might have had mm. the header, but you wouldn't have had the one that Rashford squared to Fred, which was an absolutely right. obscene piece of behaviour, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> passing, passing to him from there. But, uh, Mark Hughes would never have passed from that angle, would he? Yeah, exactly. Mm. But yeah, just having having Rashford just immediately makes you more dynamic than yeah. having Ronaldo. And I mean, Shearer was talking about... Shearer, Shearer was talking about that maybe maybe Bruno was playing better without Ronaldo. And I don't really think it was so much that as the whole team was playing better without Ronaldo because it just changes the way they're able to play. But on Bruno, because he's been getting a bit, of, he's been getting people uh, slagging him off recently. And I knew, I, t- I tweeted last night that I wonder if it might be time for, I mean, not time, but I wonder if United's best team might be Fred, not Ericsson, just partly to see how many messages I would get saying, <laughs> just leave out Bruno. But I think that the idea of like, what, because with him, He's previously everything went through him. Yeah. And he's having to learn a slightly different position. And it is therefore reasonable to show some patience with him in that in that in that aspect because he y- yeah, is good. Like, I mean people talk like he hits Hollywood balls, like he doesn't understand how to play football aside from that. When and seems that's to me nonsense. That yeah. United were getting so much so little decent possession that he did that because he had to, and that was quite yeah. what he was there for. And we saw like, against Liverpool, he played that kind of number eight position really well. Yep. He played it really well last night as well. And now the team is functioning as well. That yep. enables him to function much better. And, and look, United just have more options now, more creative options than a year ago. Uh, many more. And Sancho, who wasn't brilliant last night, but I think he was actually pretty effective in, in the positions he took up. And Anthony uh, and Ericsson when he plays... And Casemiro, because he is good good on the ball, not brilliant, but good, gives United just much, much more options for passing. And and Bruno, the, the irony, of course, is Ronaldo's dumped out of the team and Bruno, Bruno's playing the position he plays for Portugal, which is much more of a double number eight. And, and look, he can do that perfectly effectively. Last night, much more 
I mean, cautious is not right, the right word, but much more of a number eight with the ball, wasn't he? His pass percentage completion was over 90% last night. It's because he was using the ball sensibly and not having to play the killer ball because every you single don't, time. Because you're, you're getting so much more when you're dominating possession like that, you can be patient. There's a like when you're when you're trying to play like dynamic, fast attacking football. I guess there can be the temptation just to try and play that killer ball because it's sort of you're in that habit of doing everything quickly. But yeah, the more of the ball you get, you can choose choose the how you use it more carefully. And what I've really enjoyed in all in, in all the last three games actually is you've been able to see the progression because in that game against Demonia, it didn't look like United were going to score. I didn't really think in the last twenty, but they as we talked about this last week, they stuck with it. They didn't panic and they mm-hmm. kept doing the same thing. And against Newcastle, they really did look like they were going to score in the last twenty and had quite a good amount of control in that game. So yeah. even though it was a nil-nil draw and it was frustrating, I sat there thinking, actually, I've seen I felt like I'd seen some progress. And for sure, yeah. What we saw last night felt like felt like a continuation of that. I remember yeah, a combination of some of that. Yeah. I remember watching yep. a game, Tottenham against Everton, I guess probably would have been about 2015, 2016 on a Sunday afternoon, and Spurs just ran Everton off the pitch. I think well, they won two nil, but they absolutely devastated them with how quickly they did everything. And I didn't know it at the time because I don't watch Spurs every week, but I remember mentioning it to someone once who is a Spurs fan said that was the day that it all changed. Where they first, where they really saw Pochettino's vision for how he wanted that Come team to, to life, play. Yeah. And that that game sort of felt a little bit like that. Although I think that we were closer to, to it than Spurs were because we'd had we played really well against Liverpool, really well, well in parts against Arsenal, well against Everton. Mm-hmm. That was that there was a big difference between what we saw last night and what we'd seen, but it felt like last night was a culmination of all the good things that we'd seen until this point. And the yeah. fact that we stopped tossing goals in all the fucking time as well. Well, I mean, and it doesn't feel like there's, I mean, Spurs barely had a chance. I mean, it's a, it's an internet meme, but Harry Kane in Martinez's pocket, like, the, like no one's talking about Martinez's height anymore. That was as comfortable a defensive performance as you'll get. I mean, we should still take the piss out of him for being sure us, I think. But it was, <laughs> I mean, it was a bit, like the chapter about that was a bit weird in that you could say this might be a potential problem, but this guy will never make it in our league. Just like, what are you talking yeah. about? Like how, as if like, a because quali- who are you really talking about? Like how many headers does Harry Kane score? Or Erling yeah, Haaland, yeah, like a few, yeah. but not many. How many goals does what's his name that donkey face when Chris Wood score? <laughs> Almost none. <laughs> I think what I really love about Martinez, in fact, there are a lot of things I love about Martinez, but is he really understands how to commit a semi foul? Where right, you just very use just yeah. enough, you use just enough yeah, yeah. force to make sure you get your own way but not enough so that the referee can obviously penalise you. Like that foul against Demonia, that was a red card. Yeah, that was... he's he's definitely got some of the dark arts about him. He's got good social media game as well, which is uh, it's always quite amusing watching his Instagram, I think. No, look, he's he's fitting really well. I, I don't know where you'd rank him in terms of like the post-Fergie acquisitions, but he's pretty high up there already. Oh, already. I mean, I mean we haven't seen like because at this point, I probably still thought Di Maria was a good one. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that, true. <laughs> so that so there is that. But you can how see... how many games in before the Leicester game after Van Gaal shat himself yeah. and everything went. To... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, the but he is just yeah he's he 
isn't prepared to accept bullshit. And I don't, I mean, from the players around him that he expects yeah. to win, you can see, and that is transmitting to the player, to, to everyone else. I mean, that him and Varane, both of those playing well is like, there aren't many, if any, better centre-back pairings playing in the Premier League. All right. It's, uh, we just, I, I mean, we haven't, seen any signs of Martinez getting injured at all it's just we just want to keep Varane fit right because the drop-off in quality after that is quite steep (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is I still imagine Lindelof would manage to cover the distance slowly yeah that's right (laughs) yeah it is it is indeed steep but we uh, we can't leave talking about this game without mentioning old Cristiano Ronaldo who stomped off down the tunnel on 89 minutes after um after he was humiliated by Elanga coming on as a sub. I don't know what's more humiliating, not getting on the pitch on 89 minutes or getting on, on, on but the he pitch on 89 minutes. He refused. He, apparently so, yeah. yeah he refused so, to I come mean, on and then went so, off and left the ground. It's such a baby, really. He's such honestly. an odd penis. Just the thing that I don't get about this is he's 37 years old. He tried to bugger off in the summer and he no couldn't because him. no one wanted him. So if yeah. you look at it at that point, he's in training every day. He's seeing the manager. He's seeing the team. He must be able to see that the team is getting better. Even if he can't fathom why he's not in it and what it is about him that makes it not suitable for him, him getting to be an impact sub in this team for the next couple of years on the money Still that he's on sounds to yeah. me like by far the best option that's going to be available yeah. to him. Maybe United release him from his contract and he gets to go, I have nowhere. But Where? nothing that he has shown anyone in the last few weeks is going to make any of the teams that didn't want him in the summer suddenly decide that now. they must have him. So maybe he is a narcissistic sociopath. I mean, I, I mean, maybe like that might sound like hyperbole, but maybe that's just his personality type. Maybe he just cannot see the wood for the trees, not the Chris Wood for the trees, but he just doesn't he doesn't see the big picture here, and he's only focused on the the Cristiano legacy, the myth. But that's it. Like if you could, if, United, if Ten Hag makes United good again, you could be part can, of you could be part could of be. that, yeah. and you could get another couple of the years as that impacts up. And I don't I don't get why you would decide that that was beneath you, even though like do you not even have? I mean, probably not. You've got a wife. Do you not have any mates like people that tell you when you're being a prick? I don't know. No, no, he'll be surrounded by sycophants and yes men. Of course he will. So no one's going to tell Cristiano who's wrong. I mean, like not even his uh, mum. George Mendes should. My mum's told me. My mum's told me I've been a dickhead for much less embarrassing behaviour <laughs> than what he perpetrated last night. My 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 wife insists that if I took a crap on the living room floor, my mum would clean it up for me. So you know, <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> so, Freud would um, have a field day with that. It really would. <laughs> yeah, we we used to live near the Freud Museum in London. But anyway, anyway, I I, I just think I I suspect he's so so deeply narcissistic and just has no one around him going. Hang on a minute, think about this. Otherwise, he wouldn't behave like this. But he must even be having conversations with Ten Hag. He must say, "What? I don't that's know." That's not on. No, and, no, and no look, that's not this on, is another. Like, this is what you could have, or what? What? What are you getting otherwise? I don't know. I right. mean, yeah, he's just, he's just, he's just an old bloke, and that well, is he's, he's been dropped for the Chelsea way game. I can describe him. And what? Well, yeah, I mean, he's old, and his usefulness at this. I mean, most players don't make it this far. The the fact that he's still 
earning £25 million a year netto (laughs) at this stage, presumably for something more than just being a marketing figure, presumably, but although maybe that's a big presumption in the case of United. So anyway, we'll we'll see. Are we going to see him back? Because we've got, he's dropped for the weekend game. We've got what, six games after that until the World Cup? I mean... I guess I'll try and integrate him at some point I after mean, that. I mean, maybe. It may also be that he just never plays for United again now. Which, And I always wonder, because like, I felt like the way that Anthony plays, felt like there might be some goals for him at both the at front, at some headers for him, because Anthony does have the ability to put crosses in, which is something yeah. United haven't had for a while. He's, sort of, he's got that Robin erratic, thing, hasn't yeah. he, where yeah, you know, yeah, you know what, you know what him, he's yeah. going to do, yeah. but stopping him doing it is still difficult. Yeah. But also, he's another one with like just the right kind of mentality that United need. And when you see players with that mentality, it lifts those who don't quite have it, just them to have it as well. Just this whole competition for places thing, <laughs> this new fad is you could just see has made such a difference. Good. Play. Well, it's 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 brought new life to Luke Shaw again. Second time that this has happened. I also think we're seeing a bit more intensity out of Sancho. I thought it was all right last night. I saw some negative was, commentary still... on the internet, but not not as good as we'd like. We'd as like, he had. I'd like it to, yeah. Go like, I'd like him to get 75 to 100 touches a game. Has he um, had a single really getting. good game for United? I don't think so. I mean, bits and parts. You could put together a highlight. A nice reel, highlight, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could put a very good YouTube reel, to, highlights reel together. And he, you can see that he's got like beautiful soft feet and all the rest of it. But yeah, and he has affected some games, but... I don't think I've ever watched a game and said Sancho was fucking excellent today. And it's about time that happened. But for now, with Martial injured and Ronaldo not playing, this front three is going to have, I guess, at least one more game to see what he can do. Yeah. He should get more of the ball. And uh, that's partly on the team. That's partly so on Sancho, just not, not wanting it enough. So. I mean, one thing, one other thing that we should also credit Tenach for is... He's really, really good at reading games. You can see mm-hmm. that like, his substitutions have been top have been top notch. He's also, apart from the City game, which he totally fucked up, he very quickly is sus- sussing out who he needs to play and for what game. He didn't have to play Fred last night. I bet he probably could have played Ericsson. He could have played McTominay, but he stuck with Fred because he felt like he had a reason to. And Fred was crap against Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And and it works. And I get, I mean I don't know. I would assume we're going to see the same team at the weekend. That I, you wouldn't toss Ericsson into that for Chelsea away, would you? No, probably not. If he's going to play a similar system, I mean it's it's it is a bit different because Chelsea do keep the ball better. I mean, but especially that, under Potter. But then you ha- you're not tr- you're trying to get it from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think like it just. If you feel like, because Chelsea are a bit are a bit weak in midfield, whoever he plays, Kovacic, Jorginho, I'd be thinking can run them off the pitch, especially no Reese James. I'd be much more confident that we could run them off the pitch than mm-hmm. pass them off the pitch with Ericsson. I would think that mm-hmm. like, if we were able to impose the same kind of game that we did last night, then we'll get more than enough of the ball. Whereas I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, I just don't know if with Ericsson we'd be able to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably agree that it points to there being a very similar side, if not exactly the same side. I don't know how much he's going to want to freshen up, given how many games there are. And there's Real Sociedad afterwards, which is an important game. But hang on, isn't no, no, no Sheriff. Sheriff first. They've actually oh, Sheriff. They've changed the order. Yeah. It used to be that the team you played in the first game was the team you played in the penultimate game, and it's now gone the other way. So it now is... Right, it's a mirror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, Sheriff, yeah. So, yeah. Sheriff at Old Trafford. So, okay, that's a bit easier. So, you can make changes for that one. So, yeah. All right. But it's nice, uh, to, it's nice to have some options. It's nice to like... It is nice to have some options. Instead of circling through the same tracks after every disaster, you see it's the, actually, yeah, there are some consequences. Yeah, now, well, now the impact sub doesn't have to be Andres Pereira, does it? <laughs> or in fact, the starting player. No, it's good. And we can go confident. Uh, United will have played like all of the top half of the table, basically, before the World Cup and, and some difficult games there and got some really good results. So, yeah, know. then when is, it, when Sure, is there's the been a mixed bag, be... but we can feel good about it. Yeah, there must be a, an easy run at some point because, yeah, they, because they haven't had one yet, really. But mm. I mean, so where where do we what do we think this team can get to? Right, think they could they could finish second. I I don't know. I mean, they're already quite a lot of points behind. <laughs> so I think it's more realistically. So how many points behind Arsenal is going to be like eight or something? Is it? Um, but with the game and have it in right? front of me. So yeah, it's that. You know. So eight behind but, Arsenal. Eight, so they're eight behind Arsenal. Yeah, I mean beat them. Four, four behind Spurs with the game in hand. So that's basically evens and a, and a point behind Chelsea. So you know that that would suggest it's going to be super tight for third, fourth, fifth. Let's assume Liverpool aren't as shite as they've been and so Arsenal far. Haven't played season. Chelsea or City yet either. Yeah. So so yeah. I mean I, I I think yeah I mean depends if Arsenal have found a way of beating all the crap teams twice, which. Yeah, they may have done. Then, then second would be difficult to get from eight behind. But I mean, they, they didn't. They didn't play. Like, they were very lucky to get away with it against Leeds. So I'm in that. I mean, luck is probably not the right word. Actually, it was a quite chaotic game. And they had the benefit of those chaotic things in football that can go either way. As in, like Bamford missed a penalty, which obviously Ramsdale celebrated. <laughs> like, and then they had a pen, like there was a, a penalty that Leeds didn't get. There was one of those decisions that, like, not giving the penalty was the right decision. But once the referee's given it on the pitch, like sometimes, sometimes they get overturned and sometimes they don't. I would say because I mean, on that same day, United had that penalty that Sancho got, but somehow wasn't one. So yeah, right. I felt like they had the, like the the marginal aspects of football's chaos went in their favour in that game. But watching it, I wonder if they're in the process of running out of form. But I mean, they they still like they don't actually have. They've got I think they've got to play Chelsea, but they don't have many difficult games before the World Cup. I don't think they play City till afterwards. Hmm. But I was wondering well, about this with the World Cup. What do you think you want your like? Which players are going to find? Do you want to, if we're going to find it harder? Do you want your players at the World Cup playing, at the World Cup not playing, or not playing, or at home? In which case they have a like a month off and and will go cold, you know. Yeah. So what do you do? So send, what, send them more. I mean, always, you send them on holiday for two weeks, don't you? And then come back and do preseason do, training all over right, again. But you, it almost feels like the best thing is sort of. Get, at the World for, Cup, we're getting five games, quarterfinals yeah. or something. Then yeah. there's not enough time for you to lose sharpness, but you don't have those extra couple of games or whatever it might be. 
But... Yeah, that that might be the best result. I mean, United will have a fair few going, and uh, players that could go a long way as well. Like Bruno, Bruno could go, could go this, go somewhere. Could, could uh, do Varane, Portugal. Martinez, Fran, Fran Martinez could do some distance. All the Brazilians. Oh, we got three Portuguese and three Brazilians. Yeah, uh, we'll but I guess but there, there, are, there are some players that you're more you're more able to do without. Ericsson will go and be a key player of Denmark. Rashford probably will go. Sancho probably will not. Harry Maguire definitely will go. Luke Shaw will definitely go. But yeah, it's about. I mean, and will probably. It's about how far they go and how many games they're playing. I think because if you're there with the yeah. squad but you're not playing, that's also not good. I mean, I imagine the clubs will no, have contingencies right. where they're saying, "Dude, this is what you've got to do." But presumably, the country is also quite specific about what they want to be done. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it does sort of feel like you want sort of court finals for Yeah, because because otherwise they regularly. come back. Yeah, anyone makes the final, they come back and they've got a they're they're back into domestic action a week later. And dealing psychologically with either being a world champion or not being a world champion. Both of which I imagine quite distracting. <laughs> yeah, all good, I guess. How did you um, celebrate? We'll I mean, it's, 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 it's we've never had a season like it, of course, uh, and this all is going to impact a lot of a lot of clubs. I mean, Manchester City will have twenty players there, I imagine, something like that. Well, Harlan's mm. not going. And, Harlan's not going. Yeah, and someone out. I think they've got some other good players that aren't going. I thought. I thought the other day. But Edison, Stones, Cancelo, Diaz will all go. Grealish will go. Yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, Algeria there? I can't remember, actually. There you go. Testing my, uh, but, testing yeah, my I mean, World Cup. Because basically, if they're playing, you're mainly just hoping that they don't get injured. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. if they come back and they're still fit and they're not injured, then you start having options, depending on like, you where you can rest them. Like You're hoping for some easy FA Cup draws, basically. And United have a big enough squad so that they wouldn't have to play Bruno every game necessarily. And then you're hoping that they'll be fit for the run and basically at the end. But yeah, I mean, Portugal are in a difficult group. They got Uruguay and Ghana in that group and South Korea. So, I mean, it wouldn't be that surprising if they didn't get out of that because they could easily not. Well, hopefully they win it. Then Cristiano can just retire, never bother us again. I don't feel I would enjoy seeing him win the World Cup. No, I would I enjoy seeing either. Bruno win it, but, but yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of weird people on the on the internet who would, and Alex Ferguson. Apart from that, I feel like the tide has turned against him. I mean, where's one as of those? As someone much smarter than I said on the internet, the dildo of consequences rarely arrives with lube, and I feel like the consequences are stacking up for for Ronaldo now. Yeah, I mean, just, anyway, I just can't what. I mean, the, the weird thing is, I mean, yeah, some of the players seem to genuinely think he's a good bloke. But Dallow... Would... I, th- I think they're starstruck. Honestly, I think they're starstruck and so are his supporters in the media. What? Like the fact that he'll, he'll come over and say hi at half time or whatever. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think he's interested in? What? Money. Money, fame, perception of greatness, competition with Lionel Messi. Sunbeds, yeah, procreating abs, 
<laughs> what a guy. I mean, uh, he, is, right. he is the best player I've seen at United by fucking miles. I mean, I prefer, I hate to say it, but because there are others who are much more likable. But yeah, like he's the best player I've, I've ever seen at United. Probably the best player we'll ever see at United. Definitely none of the players who are at United now are going to get anywhere near as good as he was. And yet... At his peak, no. And yet, what a bell end. What a mega, massive, huge, purple bell end. Yeah. For the club's sake, they should find a way to bin him off. I, unfortunately, they should have done that in the summer. I didn't understand um, so, why they didn't. Yeah. yeah. Because especially when they were struggling to scrape money together for players, that just seemed like an easy way of generating some. Yeah, yeah. But, Freebie, here you go. Anyone will take him. Maybe they explored that option and that wasn't available either. So. Well, he won't be at Chelsea. So, we're you know, this is the, the vision of the new United without Cristiano. Winning games, playing good football. Playing good football in, under a manager who seems to not only have something about him, but a real plan to get there as well. So I, I don't want to get all ahead of ourselves here and say United are back. But, you know, you can almost see a path to being it's, back. You, you, it, yeah, like it does feel like we won't be as crap as we have been again because the players are too good now to be that crap. It would take so. it would take some injuries. Like the, the, the levels of last season, I think we shouldn't have to we shouldn't have to despise despise the players quite so much <laughs> for a little while now and, and apart from what five signings in the summer and and Ronaldo wasn't part of it last night so you know, who are really integrated into the team it's the same group of players so Ten Hag turned around the fortunes of some of them that's why that's why I despised them so much because yeah, I knew yeah. they were better than that it wasn't like watching Mark Higgins or Adam Brazil or Peter Davenport or Mount Donaghy or that kind of nonsense where it was just like your like players who just knew were crap. It's players who you knew were better because they'd shown you that they were better. Like admittedly, like sometimes an empty stadium, but they'd still like they'd won at City twice and they played really well in both of those games. They'd also gone on long runs of beaten almost everyone and they'd handed out some fucking beatings as well at the process proper thrashings all these united handed out so mm-hmm. we knew like they were at that stage where they were they were sort of at the at the 80s united could be anyone on their day stage or good enough mm-hmm. to be everyone every day stage and then they suddenly collapsed but that didn't then suddenly make them crap it was much more mental weakness than technical inability mm. And yeah, that was what made them so fucking hateful. I mean, that was why Ralph hated them so much because they weren't putting it in, and they weren't <laughs> they weren't there mentally. And it was that like it was like obviously you can lose games and have desert, but like they lost four one to Watford. Yep, that is yeah, and that was not a lack of effort either. That was a lack of focus. No, it was a lack of fortitude. Yeah. The only time that happened. So, but we moved on. And I, I look I, the city game. Ten Hag clearly got some things wrong there with the the system and being too open, and that was a punishment beating that he'll learn something from. Like all the best punishment beatings. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Better leave it there. Interview this week with Ryan O'Hanlon. 
if I can say Ryan, who's written a new book called Net Gains, if you're into stats and the, the history of stats, which Dan, you'll like because he starts, as I, as I open my interview with him, starts on the history of football being inextricably linked to the history of masturbation. Good stuff. All right, this week I'm with author Ryan O'Hanlon, who's written a new book out this week called Net Gains, diving into the history of data and analytics in football, starting with the importance of masturbation to the history of football, which I thought was a, a great place to start when thinking about where yeah, the game has come from. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, let's go the analytics for us. I don't want to say anything else. I'll definitely get myself in trouble. Yeah, I, I won't reveal the punchline of that particular one. You'll have to go get the book. But it's, it plays an important role in many clubs, including partially in, in the birth of uh, Newton Heath and Manchester United. So. Anyway, I thought, I mean, it's a book about analytics. There have been a few before it across different sports in football. And yeah, I thought think about what was the inspiration for the book why did you want to dive into this tell us a little bit about Ryan O'Hanlon and and why this subject <laughs> yeah so I I played competitive soccer as I call it growing up in the U.S. played division one college soccer was like a a decent holding midfielder the been referred to as the Bastion Schweinsteiger of the Patriot oh, League, which is not really yeah. a compliment. More of like the Man U era Bastion Schweinsteiger. Sure. Probably. And so I was also a creative writing, nonfiction creative writing concentration person who also happened to be a lot better at math, did way better on my math SATs, but wanted to be a writer for some reason. Um, and so became a magazine editor kind of out of college, worked at a couple of magazines. And I worked at this website called Grantland, which isn't around yeah. anymore. But uh, Bill Simmons, ESPN site, and I was an editor there. And a lot of the writing at Grantland was very, a lot of the journalism was very analytics fluent, not like super nerdy, but very conversational, able to use various numbers to kind of try to put an objective point on what you're saying. And I was an editor for like baseball, football, and soccer and basketball. So like in the US, uh, you know, we have the story of Moneyball that was published in the early 2000s. And then like basketball sort of followed the exact same trajectory with like the same arguments between scouts and like data people over like yep. what you can measure, what you can't measure. And then even like data people being like, actually, you're right. We can't measure that. We shouldn't overthink this. But like that pattern happened. And then kind of the same thing is now happening in the NFL. So I kind of felt like I was kind of like, it just felt inevitable that a similar thing would happen with soccer, even though the, the center, the brain of the operation is not in the U.S. And so I, I felt like I kind of had a little bit of a cheat code to kind of maybe see where things mm -hmm. were going. So I, I became interested in that side of the game and just more like the efforts to kind of quantify what's happening on the field and like then what the efforts to quantify what's happening on the field tell you about how the game works and how maybe it could work better. And so that got me kind of interested in this specific topic. And then I think I kind of got burnt out being an editor and the idea of writing a book where you kind of get to take your time, delve into an 800 word aside about masturbation. That was, that appealed to me a lot. So I kind of threw this idea around to an editor um, and he, I had some specific ideas and he kind of encouraged me to just do like, no, just do like the whole thing about analytics right. in soccer rather than focusing on like a specific team or something. And then you kind of report it out, see what stories are interesting, see who's a good interview, and you kind of piece it together right. from there. 
Yeah, because you focus on a lot of the characters. I mean, not not one character is in Moneyball, but Luke Bourne and 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 some of the names people will know: Michael Kelly, Chris Anderson, Ted Knudsen will all be familiar to people, and you sort of tell the story of analytics and its journey through them. And where where would you think we are in the journey? I mean, if 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 baseball is sort of hyper analyticified, I just made that word up. Where is football? Because there's a lot that. And you mentioned in the book, actually, yeah, ninety-seven percent of the time a player doesn't have the ball. So, what are yeah. you what are you actually measuring when they don't have the ball? So, yeah, where are that, we that, on the journey? That's a famous Cruyff quote, actually. So, I would say, like the uh, the big kind of two track takeaway, I think, from the book is like we're not even like baseball. Everything isn't quantified, but because of the nature of the sport, where it's just like an individual one v one interaction between the batter and the pitcher over and over and over again, very little right. interactions between the other players that just makes it way easier to measure. So I think baseball, like compared to all the other sports, baseball is at a 10 in terms of what they know about the sport. And then also a 10 in terms of the people that make decisions using that information basically. Mm-hmm. And I think soccer is probably at like a, I'd say four in terms of the information that's been gleaned. And then like a two and a half or a three in terms of how well it's being used. There's a quote in your book, not enough information, too much data, which which I think when I spoke to Omar Chowdhury a few years ago on, on the pod, he, he mm-hmm. said something very similar. This was their goal, basically. You know, lots and lots yeah. of data. Can, can we actually glean something from it? Yeah. But he cuts quite a frustrated figure, I think, in your book about yeah. his ability 10 years in to have actually influenced football at all with data and and do you get that sense from your investigations here that it still really isn't in fact even more telling is the quote where you something along the lines of teams have an analyst but mostly it's because they'd look bad if they didn't yeah yeah i think it's like i almost think it's easy you know you go on there's a ton of data being thrown around on twitter very everyone like you it's out there it's impossible to avoid it i think expected goals is like it's on match of the day and stuff like that you know there's still arguments about that stuff but like all this kind of data that's out there would i think potentially gives you a skewed skewed sense of how influential it actually is like right. you, you mentioned luke Bourne. um he's kind of a bunch of people that i respect a lot in the in the u.s sports scene just essentially call him the best person in sports analytics because he like right knows how to like do all the in the weeds like quantification but then also like was a front office person for the sacramento king so he also understands how to like deal with the power structures within a team and yet he was the head of analytics for roma briefly and i think when roma made the semifinals i think people like me especially when they played liverpool it was very easy to be like oh my god look it's two like analytics teams they're in the semis and then what he told me in the book is he barely had any impact on what they were doing. I think he said that uh, Luciano Spalletti made him more espressos than he cared to count, but had no interest in analytics whatsoever. So when if he's not having an impact, it's kind of like, who else is? I guess in the sort of jock v nerds debate, football's still on the the side of the jocks at least it, at least for now i mean maybe maybe that changes with the introduction of a new generation or something like that i mean spalletti of course is is a god amongst tactics nerds yeah. maybe not 
data nerds thing. He's doing the Napoli look amazing so far this season. So yeah, and and I think probably probably like if it doesn't it feel like you hear a new American billionaire has bought like a random team in Italy or Spain like every week now, and I think that that will probably have an effect too. Not not saying that is good that Americans are just buying teams, but I think coming from the American sports, yeah. thing, just naturally they're going to have a different perspective and hire different people probably. Well, there there is a sense, I think, that US sports billionaires or PE funds mm-hmm. who are coming into the European game have this, and, and Todd Bowley said it this summer, something to the effect of, we think we can do this better. And and that does yeah. rub people in Europe up the wrong way a little bit. But, but also that there is that different perspective on how to run a sports franchise and and how to get the best out of your investment and and so maybe that does make a difference to the european game yeah yeah but at the at the same time i think one of the things as i kind of what i find interesting about this stuff in a way that i don't find the baseball stuff is interesting is like it is true that soccer is incredibly dynamic and hard to measure and might actually never purely be measured or by the time we start measuring everything, the game will be played differently and the things that are being measured don't matter. So I think like coming in and thinking it's like, oh, like I, I know data. I, I got a football reference spreadsheet here and we're going to get promoted because of that is also a completely almost a worse way of kind of trying to to make a difference, I think. I don't know. Stefan Szymanski's done an update to his model that, that money spent on wages is yeah. still the largest determiner of success than yep. anything else. And it's much more important than the coach, yeah. no matter how much we deify Pep Guardiola <laughs> yeah. or Jürgen Klopp or yeah. Alex Ferguson. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm always amused by like a new coach comes in and like within the first game and his team wins, he kind of gets credited for the victory. And it's just like, yeah, he's a coach for like a week. I, I think we could probably give the players more credit for, for what happened here. Or even like not to go on a rant, but I just remember when Arsenal beat Tottenham recently, there was just a bunch of pieces that were like how how Arteta shredded Spurs. And it's like, he seems like a good coach, but like, what about like Bukayo Saka or Odegaard? You know, I think they had a bigger impact. And I think it's for whatever reason in, in soccer, maybe because it is so hard to understand, right? I, I think the manager gets a lot more credit than he does in American sports, which is kind of interesting. Right, and there's a piece in uh, in the book where you talk about how how the owner or the general manager goes and lifts the trophy <laughs> in a, American yeah. sports, and uh, the sight of I don't know Malcolm Glazer or any of his siblings oh lifting a trophy for United. <laughs> what would happen a... if if United won their first title in however many years, and the Glazers were just insistent on being out there to lift the, <laughs> lift the trophy? I mean, it, it's a, it, it, that's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? <laughs> would uh, would the fans be placated because United had won, or see it as an opportunity to lynch him? And I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go fifty fifty on that one. And so they uh, they have rarely turned up at Old Trafford, and when they have, they have ample amounts of security. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah, yeah, probably wise. <laughs> I mean, when you look across the different types of data, I mean, because you cover you cover quite a few of them in in your book, data around the game itself and the performance metrics, XG and so on, data around transfers, which which Omar is is very focused on, data around the the value you get from transfers, and there's a whole piece in the the book around Midland and Brentford and mm-hmm. and and that group there. Where do you think the biggest impact? 
is it on the business side or on the playing side and 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 where do you think that might go yeah i mean in terms of the business side or the playing side i mean i guess the it's hard to separate the two i guess is what i would say i feel like i don't know so the the way i've heard it described right is if you think that all the sports are going to follow the baseball pattern the baseball pattern was first moneyball was basically about finding players who were good that other people didn't realize were good basically then the second step in baseball was um changing the way that the game was played with a lot more strikeouts home runs infield shift stuff like that and then the third phase in baseball now is like using data to improve players and like improve like veteran players are suddenly like becoming like mvp level players all of a sudden so if you agree with that i think it's probably honestly the biggest impact right now is probably like like prevention of making mistakes in the transfer market I, i think it's harder to so there's this this idea in the nfl draft where you know you have this consensus board of who the best players are and when a team reaches for a player that player is likely to fail because all it takes for a team to reach for a player is one team to overvalue a player but if a player compared to cons- that big board or whatever drops and gets picked he's also likely to fail because even though he seems like he's being undervalued on the consensus rankings 30 teams are passing on him which seems to suggest that he maybe this consensus board is missing something so i think like in that same way it's almost most useful still to like know who not to sign basically right and you know not omar has the stat in the book where club record transfers across all clubs on average play 50 percent of the available minutes for their clubs which is just right. if you're going to spend ridiculous yeah, 20% of your revenue on a single, on not even a player, on the ability to then sign the player to a contract, you would hope that yeah. you would be playing 90% of the time or whatever. So I still feel like that's probably the biggest, biggest area where you can, where it can have an impact kind of right away. So why have Manchester United managed to <laughs> blow it in the transfer market for <laughs> 10 years in a row that's a kind of rhetorical question yeah um, <laughs> but, but yeah there's a there's a you know a, a, a few pages in the book where you you look at that and i'd say rightfully point to some some of the mistakes of the the past years yeah i mean it's i think the easiest thing is like it's almost like if you use i feel like if you're using data in like the right way it almost like forces you into some kind of like identity right because it's like we want players that check these boxes with this data, right? So that almost like forces you to be a little more focused. And I feel like I forget what well, I think it was one of the Glazers basically just said, well, the transfer market isn't isn't hard because everyone knows who the best players are, which obviously isn't true. So I think like, I mean, the thing I think with United, right, is like you look at all the players they have and it's just like if you were designing a team to play a certain way and be cohesive, like you would never set out to stack all of those <laughs> players on the same roster. Like, so I think like having just not really having a, having like a identity that you're recruiting within to, I think is probably one of the biggest reasons. And it's probably not news to you, that idea. No, we've talked about it a lot for many, I mean, this, this pod has been going since 2009. <laughs> so obviously like for, 
most of those years mm-hmm. we've had the picture clarifying in our mind of just how poor United have been in Got this a couple aspect. Started off on a high, though, at least. Yeah. First couple of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> those, those were good years. Those are good years. You could also argue that, like, if I want to be kind, like, perhaps there's some kind of curse to, like, essentially having unlimited money compared to the other teams that like the money ball like money ball happened because the a's owners didn't want to spend a lot of money on players so they were forced to like if billy bean had the yankees budget he would have Mm -hmm. targeted different players and then in baseball like the yankees and dodgers have now copied the a's and stolen those methods basically so i wonder if that's that probably plays a bit into it too if i had to guess yeah and i think i think we you didn't really talk about it in, in your book, but the role of Ed Woodward there and his yeah. philosophy that one that you needed a, a fat squad, high asset values, be- yeah. because he's a banker, sort yeah. of like note this, and and the need to play into the commercial line of of Manchester United did, did play a very significant, overweighted part in the recruitment strategy for sure. And and from there, a lot of mistakes were made. We'll see whether that changes. I don't know when you spend 70 million euros on a 30-year-old, as good as Casemiro might be, it suggests that maybe that strategy hasn't changed much. Yeah, it, it, it certainly seems like different voices are getting certain things they're asking for in what this past summer, but we'll see. You, you also look backwards and there's a, I, I think for sort of especially uh, students of well fans of my age mm. who support England nominally at least and have suffered much over the years <laughs> especially early in my childhood when football was not very good compared to what it is today and you have a whole section on Charles Reap and the sort of redemption story around Charles Reap many people don't know he's he's the man who analyzed football and suggested that most goals were scored from three passes and got the data slightly wrong and it led to generations of long ball football in England simplifying the story somewhat <laughs> But it's a fascinating story. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. And to be honest with you, I I sort of came into the book (laughs) with a certain idea of how I was going to write about it, kind of write about it as here's the story of I have some people think he's kind of the first like data analyst across all sports, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Or he was like doing hit what he his notations right around when I guess this guy Branch Rickey started to do it in baseball and kind of write about that, but also like a cautionary tale, right? Of leaving too deeply in what the data tells you and then looking at it in the wrong way. Cause the idea, as you said, is um, he found that most goals were scored from short possessions, very few passes. So then he decided that, okay, we should try to have possessions with fewer passes but ultimately, more goals were scored because, in, with shorter possessions, because most possessions are shorter. But the average longer possession is more was more likely to actually lead to a goal. So that was kind of his his error. But I actually stumbled across this paper by this guy Richard Pollard, and it was just like a defense of Charles Reap mm-hmm. written in an academic way. And I was like, wow, like didn't know didn't know that that was. I thought we'd kind of we'd all shook hands on this one and agreed on it and i don't totally buy the defense of that idea that we just talked about but i started talking to richard and it was really funny the first time we talked to he, he kind of was like yeah like the passes thing was like 
he did all we did all this other work too and he was like yeah we reap was very much into the idea of it's really valuable if you win the ball in the other teams attacking third right. and i was like well this was right after liverpool won the premier league i was like well have you heard of jurgen klopp and he was like i haven't really watched a game in like 10 years then he was like and reap was also very into having a keeper that could accurately kick the ball long. And I was like, well, have you heard of Ederson, this player on Manchester yep. City? And he's like, no, like I thought they were just doing like tiki-taka or whatever. And then I kind of met him, developed a relationship with him, visited him. And yeah, like it, they did a ton more stuff. And I think I, I came to have a much bigger appreciation for Reap because I think what I kind of like, like it must have been really hard in like the 60s and 70s to come into this sport and be like, I just measured this sport and here are all these numbers. Here's why I'm mm-hmm. right. And I think maybe he even had to like, partially the reason maybe he caught on with Watford and the other teams he caught on with and Graham Taylor yep. was because he was such a kind of steadfast voice that maybe made it hard to hard to ignore, even though ultimately that kind of led to, not led to his demise, but led to the demise of his influence, I guess. Yeah, but but in winning the ball high up the field in the gegenpressing pressing tradition, some of some of what he he was arguing for, maybe indirectly, has come to pass. Although we did have to suffer for thirty years of long ball football in England <laughs> before yeah. it all sort of died out. And of course, the opposite is true. There are fundamentalists on the passing side as well. You know, we had a coach in Louis Van Gaal who I think was probably disappointed when United scored because it meant you turn over possession. Such was his love of passing the ball sidewards. Not quite true. But it's a, yeah, it's a, a fascinating history of how analytics has like shaped our game and some of the people in it. I mean, how far can it take you, do you think, this? If we say that it hasn't really touched the surface yet, and although in the media, analytics is becoming prominent, and certainly in social media, if it's not impacting clubs like high up the food chain, in a really substantial way. Is analytics involvement in the game always destined to be limited? Is the the Billy Bean story not likely to happen in in football or or is Brentford and Michelin and clubs like that where it's most impactful? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because like ultimately I think it still comes down to just having the best players. Like that's how you win. And, but the, the idea of, identifying who the best players actually are, what that even means. Like, what does it mean to be the best defensive midfielder? That could mean a hundred different things for a hundred different teams, right? Best fullback, you know, what Trent Alexander-Arnold versus Reese James, like the Kyle versus Kyle Walker. Those are, they all play the same position, but like, it's incredibly different things that they do. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think like if a team like United just like totally kind of bought into it and like, let's say even like hired Billy Bean, right? Because he co-owner of Toulouse and now a co-owner of AC Milan. So that's kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, a sleeping giant, if you will. I think like you'd probably see United just like challenging Manchester City on a consistent basis. But I think, I don't know, I I think it's the hard thing, right? Is that it is still like such a random sport. Like someone like Brentford, right? They overachieve their payroll pretty aggressively in the championship. But and then played pretty well, like compared to for their payroll compared to the Premier League last year. But like they were still like one or two injuries or like a couple of just like unlucky results away from like getting relegated all of a sudden. And then you lose all that money. And it's like 
good try. <laughs> like, there you yeah. go. So I think relegation does, relegation one, like, prevents people from maybe being as aggressive as they could be with stuff like this. Because the only thing worse than getting relegated is, like, being actively vocal about how you're using analytics and getting relegated, probably. The safe bet is to hire Sam Allardyce. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But Sam Allardyce, who I didn't really get into this in the book, was kind of an early adopter of analytics to some sort with Bolton, too. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not really not really answering your question, but I, I think Brentford is kind of the proof of like what it can actually do because they've hmm. risen pretty aggressively without spending that much money i don't think over the years i think obviously liverpool is kind of famous for it but i and i think that has played a role but like also like just having firmino mana and salah all be amazing like i don't think they expected probably any of them to be as good as they all were yes having van dyke just suddenly like no one thought van dyke was just the best center back in the world when they signed him having Trent Alexander Arnold just grow up in Liverpool. Like that's pretty, pretty random. Andy Robertson, like those, I think the Liverpool like story is worked because they like maxed out every player that they signed. And now I think you're kind of seeing this year where sometimes it doesn't go your way. Right. So I think the random, because inevitably there will be some failures. Yeah, exactly. With data. Yeah, exactly. Or you, or you have a data on 800 fullbacks and still manage just to fail, as United did with Aaron Wan-Bissaka. <laughs> so you, I mean, you talked a lot about the past of analytics and and a little a little bit about the future, and talk a lot about sort of innovation and what it mean, means to a club. And we're both based in the US, where <laughs> there is no relegation, and there's an argument in your book about whether that's an inspiration to innovation or not. Mm-hmm. And where do you come down on that? Our MLS teams, it's about championships set at the standard or something like that, but very well supported across the league. Are they are they innovating with data in the way other US sports? I don't think it's at the same level as basketball or baseball. I don't even really know if I would say it's that much ahead of the Premier League. Maybe there's a little more widespread adoption because, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's like, in some ways, a salary cap maybe does encourage you to try to think differently, right? If you're, if you just can only really spend as much money as all the other teams in your league, even though that isn't exactly how a salary cap works, perhaps that spurs some innovation, but also like perhaps it doesn't cause like there's no relegation. So you're just guaranteed the share of the TV revenue each year, even if your team sucks. <laughs> so what was the incentive to invest in this new stuff? Yeah, so I I I think I come down with soccer on the side that I think relegation probably is kind of a cultural disincentive, even though it should be a competitive incentive to to do it. Would be what I would say. Great. And so, what, what's your next project? Are you are you beyond this one? Looking at other parts of the football world or or onto a different sport? We'll see. I was on another podcast and they suggested I try to write a book about what agents actually do in soccer. And I said, right, It'd be very interesting. Also, might be dangerous to my health if I actually pursued that too <laughs> aggressively. So I think we'll see. I mean, I, I have some some kind of some theories that I might be able to turn into a book. But right now I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I really like the process of writing the book. I actually really enjoyed it. The process. And I've, I've very much enjoyed our conversation, 
but the process of like having to promote the book is really doesn't fit that well with my personality. So I'm just trying to get through that before I dig into something bigger again. But I'll, I'll I will let you know what it is as soon as I find it. All right. Well, good luck with all the other podcast interviews. Again, it's Net Gains by Ryan O'Hanlon. I believe it's out this week. Yep, it's out. The Tuesday of this week, whenever you're listening to this. Probably listen to it on Thursday and Friday. Um, so it's out already, so, uh, probably. There you go, rush to the bookstores. <laughs> yeah. For a subject that could be dry, it's a really interesting sort of human read based around some of the characters and gives you some insight in how we got to where we got to today. So, yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks for that. your time. Thanks for having me.